Roots Race and Culture is made possible in part by the contributions to PBS Utah from listeners like you. Thank you. Hey everybody, you're listening to Roots, Race, and Culture, a new podcast from PBS Utah. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll subscribe, leave us a review, and share with your friends. All right, now let's get this thing started. Hey everybody, and welcome to Roots, Race, and Culture, where we bring you into candid conversations about shared cultural experiences. I'm Dana Gerald. And I'm Lonzo Liggins. Today we're going to be talking about a growing movement within indigenous communities activism involving the food we all eat. According to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there's no universal definition for food sovereignty, but it can be described as the ability of communities to determine the quantity and quality of the food they consume by controlling how their food is produced and distributed. From food insecurity, ancestral land disputes, and the importance of preserving the resources in our community, food sovereignty is more than food. Joining us today are two of those activists with an indigenous perspective on the topic. Welcome, guys. Thank you for joining Thank us. Please introduce yourself for our guests. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm Reagan White Lucy. I live in southeastern Utah. I'm of Navajo descent, and I currently work with Utah State University Extension, um, and I practice predominantly in horticulture, which is a lot of the focus that I um, have in my job, uh, working in my communities and teaching horticulture, coming back to the land, um, is that's the primary focus of, of where I have established my life and the direction and the passions that I have. Wonderful. Nice. Wonderful. How about you, Carlos? Hey, morning, everybody. Uh, Carlos Baca. I am both Dene and Southern Ute. Um, I am a co-founder of the I Collective, which is an indigenous uh, food activist group that is international. Um, we have members from Oaxaca up to First Nations. Uh, I'm the lead writer of A Gathering Basket, which is our, our uh, traditional food multimedia cookbook, which looks at indigenous food ways through the, through the lens of colonization um, and, and warfare against our food system as well as a, a farmer here at Fourth World Farm here in Southwest Colorado and the founder of Taste of Native Cuisine, which is a traditional foods, um, I guess, a catering business, you could say. You're a chef, right, Carlos? Yeah, I, I prefer not to use that terminology, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Well, first of all, how would you define indigenous food sovereignty? Let's start with you, Reagan. What does it mean to you? Um, for me, it's that uh, a community can have a food system, um, a food chain, su uh, a supply chain, I guess you would say, and that uh, we would be self-sufficient and utilizing uh, what is known to us, what is available to us mm. to support um, our communities. That's, that to me is uh, food sovereignty. So some independence, it sounds like, yes, is involved. Yes, very that. much so. Okay. What about you, Carlos? How would you define it? Mm, there's a lot of a lot of depth in that conversation. So <laughs> you have to look really, really inward and have this understanding of like the true power of colonization on our on our people is that you know homelands that we've been in for you know tens of thousands of years and have provided for us for that entirety of time. We're still fortunate enough here in the Southwest, in particular, to still be in these homelands. 
And even that being the case, people go hungry on the lands that have provided for them for, for that long. Mm. So, you know, it really goes to, you have to speak towards reclamation of knowledge, you know, reclamation of, of self and, and really, uh, I, I don't like the word decolonization, I think re-indigenization is a little bit more uh, important of a conversation, but you know, those, you, you, you put those on top of systems like the USDA, who enforces their rules on indigenous ways, right, and indigenous food ways. Mm. And that takes away a lot of, of the power of the people to step back into that place. So it's a lot to that, to that story. Yeah, we're going to spend some time covering that today. So thank you for helping us see that perspective. So let's kind of roll it back a little bit in time. What was a typical food diet like prior to colonization? Can you give us a little bit of insight, Reagan? Yeah, um, Carlos can probably give a very colorful picture, um, you know, being a, a chef. Um, my experience as a horticulturalist and then learning um, about some of, some of the knowledge um, unfortunately, when I grew up, I didn't have a strong background of, of my parents uh, or my elders teaching me a lot of, you know, what our basic food sources were. Um, so I started to actually learn um, about who I was when I started to go through school and get, a, get um, an education in agriculture. Wow. And so my whole education and involving is around um, the farming aspect of, of our people. And so what that cuisine started to look like was obviously we have corn, beans, and squash. That's the three sisters, very commonly known and, and described in those terms. Um, growing practices are very different between tribes though. So it's not that these seeds are planted in the, in the same hole, like uh, is very widely known when the three sisters story is told. Um, but actually we had cornfields. Um, and the most traditional aspect of, if we look at just the Navajo people and how we farmed is that we had our cornfields in an open area um, and those were generally flood irrigated spaces and then amongst them would potentially be very volunteer growing squash, mm. uh, melons, beans. Mm. Um, and then along some of these uh, where uh, if, if if you're very familiar to the geography of uh, Lake Powell area and Southern Utah and the canyon spaces, imagine you take away all the water. Um, a lot of our farming areas for Navajo actually dwell in these slot canyon spaces. Wow. And wow. so. And now they're, they're nothing but water there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of them. Um, but still in the upper areas, we do still have a lot of those traditional farmsteads that, that um, fortunately have not been engulfed underneath the water. And so um, we have peaches, we have orchards, um, we have uh, walnuts. There's, there's a lot of nut crops that are native to North America that we would harvest from. Um, there's wild plums. There's just an abundance of, of food from my experience as a, as a horticulturalist and learning about the farming aspect. There's grapes, there's, there's so much uh, variety, apricots. I, we can keep going on, right, right. you know. That, that sounds very similar um, to what we grew in Mississippi where I grew up actually. And it's, it's very <laughs> similar to our diets today, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had uh, wild potatoes. We would go and harvest. They're very small. They don't look like the potatoes that you get in the grocery store. Mm. Same thing with the peaches, um, which, which I've been very uh, known to being a promoter and a preserver of 
that traditional crop, but they don't look like the, your, your peaches in the grocery store. They're mm -hmm. very small, like the size of an apricot, mm -hmm. uh, typically white flesh, some can be yellow fleshed, very pale color, they're not vibrant and bright, um, but wow. they're very nutritious for us and they're very easy to process and preserve. So right. things have changed so, a lot since colonization, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> Did you want to add to that, Carlos? Like what food was like prior to colonization? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's been that's been my life study, and you know, luckily I've been uh, privileged enough that my grandparents still practiced a lot of of those food and medicine ways and that uh, <clears throat> traditional ethnobotany. So I always compare it to like I always make a joke, right? You can go to Whole Foods, right, and and you have this vast array of things, and that's the same in nature, right? The shifting in that terminology would be, though, the pun, I guess the pun in it is that we had a Whole Foods diet, <laughs> you know, like, like literally, you know, and, and so we have this, you know, not only do you have that aspect of, of traditional farming, um, I will say like for myself, I have, I have knowledge of well over 300 uh, plants that are, are food and medicine just here in this, in the Four Corners region. Mm. And um, there are others, um, like uh, the Dene ethnobotanist Arnold Clifford, who has numerous plants named after him, um, actually really amazing, who knows literal thousands upon thousands. Mm. Um, so, you know, I can, I can go outside any any given time and, and everything is pretty is practically food or medicine, right. um, and that is what our tradition is. You know, like that's the depth of it. Yeah, I would love to get into that, like we're, especially a little later on the show. But let's let's fast forward a little bit to today. Um, can you guys explain some of the current food challenges that are coming up with you guys and uh, in your community today? Yeah. Um, I'll start with you, Reagan. Okay, so. Currently, because because of some of the colonization uh, implications that have happened, is that our people um, and all Native American tribes were being forced to assimilate to uh, colonization practices, mm -hmm. and that included farming practices. It's written in our treaties that you know we have to um, uh, develop and start practicing modern farming practices. What's okay with with the colonization. So right there, we're already transitioning from, from day one into this assimilation of, you know, being what was uh, appropriate mm. to them in their eyes. Well, and, and based on what Carlos says, that, that sounds to me, Carlos, like it's not just a change in diet, but it's a change in culture. I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that removal of, like what is indigenous? Yeah. You know, yeah. like indigenous yeah. is, is being of a place and that's, that's knowledge of your entire ecosystem and understanding the place that you play in it. And so as soon as you start knocking those, those things out, you know, as soon as you get, you know, and for, the reservation system, you know, the, the reservations before they were reservations for the most part were uh, prisoner of war camps. And in those camps, you know, you got what 
was given to the people, right? And so that's rancid flour and things like this that that are not part of the traditional food way. And, you know, we can look around our communities today and see the health effects of that nonstop. You know, it's an, it's an ever, ever growing challenge. So it's, uh, mm. it's real, you know, colonization does its job very well. Wow. So, um, are there any lost foods? Um, I know your expertise is in agriculture and horticulture. Have there any, are there any indigenous foods that were part of your diet that, that no longer exist? I would say um, they're in existence, but in very rare cases. Mm. Um, and it goes back to the family roots, the families that are actually trying to keep those traditional practices and pass those down. And so when it comes to the families that have lost that, um, and my family can be a, a pretty good example. You know, we, we, my parents followed the path of assimilating very well um, to modern uh, practices. Um, you know, having, working with the economy, having a job, having a business, mm -hmm. you know, we, we settle into that working and living in, in a society with convenience, like an urban community, um, rather than living in the traditional uh, lands that their grandparents lived in, that they grew food, that they gathered their food. Mm -hmm. And so um, that dynamic in the difference of, of families that don't have that, um, that traditional aspect anymore. It comes down to, we no longer know how to use the land. We no longer know where to go and collect our traditional medicines or the plants that uh, make traditional dyes like the moccasin, the color for the moccasin. Oh, um, beautiful, by the way. Um, you're, you're, you look, you're, you're, <laughs> this outfit is amazing. We were so, just coming before. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just, just some examples of what is this plant that makes this dye? Oh. A lot of us don't know, and there's not very many of us that many of our people left that do know mm. um, or that have even seen it. Uh, my dad growing up, he says, I know the plant that my dad used to make moccasins, and um, he's the one that made the first moccasins for me, and he still has them. Wow. Um, and so uh, the aspect of when we get into the food, it's the same circumstance. Uh, now it's processed food because we we are relying on grocery stores, which mm. there's only, um, I believe only 13 grocery stores across the entire Navajo Nation, which is the size of Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts oh as a goodness. whole. Wow. Um, so you look at that demographic and think wow. people have to travel very far to get food. So we're relying on that rather really? than growing and collecting. Since we were isolated to a certain land boundary, um, in a lot of cases for tribal communities, that's very small, maybe 5% of where their traditional tribal boundaries actually were. And so when you look at the aspect of how we gather and if we go outside and want to, you know, say we, we need to find this medicine because someone's ill with something. Mm -hmm. So we know where to go and source that. Now we've gone to restricted boundaries. Maybe that plant is outside of our boundaries. So you can't get to it. So maybe we can't get to it. Oh my goodness. So are there foods or plants that you guys avoid that are forbidden, you know, that you just wouldn't go near? Carlos? <laughs> um, no, you know, I mean, there's a lot of plants that have been demonized by you know through the uh through the church in particular like um, what give us an example 
Oh, so like anything with with uh, that would be considered a hallucinate, you know, hallucinatory okay. thing. So okay. any mushroom, wow. things like that. But now that you come into a problem with that, is that some of those those things are actually foods as mm. well. You know, they weren't they weren't just medicine things. They're brought. You can process them into to another. Uh, another being you know and, and they become sustenance so um and then you look to another another example of that there particularly in utah you know the 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 sago lilies being your your state flower and they those were um a food that saved the mormon people right the indigenous people showed them this and they they showed it to them and then now you becomes your your state flower and now it becomes a protected species now you're not supposed to use it oh wow and so something like that can pull away you know uh from an indigenous food system right you know and so there's there's many many fronts of attack in that in, in in food warfare on our peoples for sure yeah that's amazing well, you know what we want to talk about? Because both of you are really good at uh, native plant gardens. I know, Carlos, you, we had spoken about this. And uh, Reagan, that's one of your specialties, right? Native plant farming and developing plant Developing that as a specialty, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what would, pe- like, if people at home wanted to sort of be a part of this and be an active participant in, in, in trying to be a solution to this problem, how could we start our own native plant garden? We start with you, Reagan. So um, when we talk about native plant garden, I think there's a lot of different ways that we can look at this. It could be, you know, looking at natural pollinator plants. Okay. It could be food plants. I think it kind of goes with what is your overall gain and outlook? What do you want to aspire? How do you want to help the environment? Mm-hmm. And um, I think first and foremost, because of the drought, I would say pollinator habitat 100% um, is a go for because if we have um, in Utah, we have a monoculture um, landscaping system. Mm. And right now, Utah is actually trying to transition away from that. Um, but a very what is it? What is it? No, mono, is it? monoculture. So it, like like one species type landscape. Mm. Oh, gotcha. So turf. Gotcha. Okay. Right, right. So yeah. we put that aspect and then maybe we throw in some trees for shade. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been the traditional Utah landscape for since the establishment of Utah, basically, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and that's what everybody aspires to. So if you yeah, have a neighbor, suburban. it's, yeah, it's like um, you have a neighbor maybe that, that doesn't take care of their lawn. The yeah. biggest outcry with neighbors that do and have <laughs> the perfect turf without a dandelion in it. And right. you have a neighbor that has a whole mess of dandelions in it. It's you need to take care of your weeds. <laughs> but what is dandelion? It's a food. It's a yep. medicine, yep. you know. Um, and so, so what would so, be an example of plants that would be, um, what's the word you used? Uh, pollinators. Pollinators, yeah. Pollinators. pollinators. So we want to attract bees, butterflies, um, could be um, some type of bird species, you know. Oh. And so if you go to your nursery, there's got to be, you know, there's there, usually there's, there's some form of a list that um, like your local nursery can help you with. Oh, cool. Um, we're fortunate, I think, down in southeast Utah, where we have some nurseries from uh, that are experienced in the Colorado Plateau. So they're more uh, looking at the drought tolerant species and not the water wise, uh, the water lover species, which wow. up here in northern Utah, a lot of nurseries actually do carry a lot more species that love the water. 
Mm. So when we look at the aspect of well, we want to conserve water, but we want to keep the soil from running off and eroding. We want to make sure that there's some life, you know. There's a lot of depth to this. Yeah, there's there's so much. <laughs> I mean, we can, we can keep going into so many layers. So it's wow. like, what do you want? And and that's where my expertise comes in is, is do you want to be the person to give back? Mm. And the best way I always say is that pollinator habitat. And then we can go into native gardens with food. Do you want food into this? Do you want to benefit from this too? So some of these pollinator plants, we can do medicines. We can learn how to source from those, but then also give back to the natural, um, you know, the wildlife, the natural environment. That's um, great. And then, and then, yeah, adding that layer of food because the, the local food, native plants, we can have established gardens, we can talk about water-wise gardens, we can talk about heirloom crops. Wow. There's so much we can just <laughs> talk about here. Yeah. So. Carlos, you wanna chime in? Yeah, is there anything that maybe restaurants or th things can do to help with this cause? Um, no, I think that they're, I, I teach a lot, right? And I, and I, I teach a lot of, of younger, you know, grade school through high school youth. And I think, I think the important aspect for me to get across is that it's okay to go ahead and plant things, right? It's okay to do that and to learn about those things, but what's your relationship to the plant? Mm. And yeah. so actually cultivating a, a relationship to a single plant. Mm. Find that plant, you know, that's 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 native that maybe your grandma remembers or one of your relatives that has a cultural uh, connection, right? And then learn about that plant, sit with that plant, talk to that plant. You know, there's a different understand who you know we're talking about pollination, right? Like learn who pollinates it, who visits it, um, and those kind of things because those are the establishments that help us reconnect and, and get that, that knowledge base back. Um, you know, like here, here at the farm, that's, that's the whole of what I do. Um, you know, it's, it's a farm in, in terms of, yes, we grow crops, we grow, and we grow all pre-colonial um, indigenous, you know, crops that a lot of them are uh, rematriated crops, things that have been out of community and out of this region for, you know, hundred years, some of them, mm. and you know, and, and there's this other these these concepts you have to like look at. There's like that sedentary agriculture, right? And then I always say there's there's not really terminology for a lot of the stuff that that I work with. So, um, in like the U way, I I speak about uh, like cultivation and motion, right? So as a people that that traversed the mountain range, you know, and it went as far down as, you know, into Apache territory, like almost down into Hopi territory, but then all the way up and towards uh, Idaho and Montana, right? Like this huge, massive space within these mountains. And the cultivation was constantly in motion, you know? So the, the plants and the foods and, and all of these things were, were being moved along with the people. Wow. And... That's the same thing that we're doing here because this, you know, this space was uh, completely uh, decimated. It was deforested. The, the Spaniards moved the waterways in this region when they were here. And then the Mormons came behind them and, and cut out the, 
the remaining trees and they brought in more cattle and more, you know, and, and, and this land base has been pretty destroyed. And so, wow. uh, well, you know, we, we want to we talk that. more about this a little later. Do you want to yeah, stick around yeah. for our podcast? Because we're, we're going we're gonna to have you guys stick around and talk to you a little bit more about this stuff because yeah, uh, we're about to wrap up here. But do. we want to get your final thoughts. Yeah. And uh, see. Yeah, what would be your, what would be the one takeaway you would want someone to have in 30 seconds? What can someone do that's important to remember? I think it's, um, it's very important to learn history. Um, I think the common term is, you know, you don't want history to repeat itself. We know what's happened. Um, but it's also kind of giving credit to, you know, this is the land that we all live in now. Um, so we've, we've been taught to understand you know, colonization history, everybody has. Yeah. It's very expected. Um, but what about the First Nations history? Um, and getting to know that we're not, we're not all the same. We, we're all from different tribes. We have different practices. Mm. Our moccasins can be different between tribes. Mm. Um, and same thing with hairstyles, our way of living. It could be our food because of our, where we're regionally located. And so when we talk about um, going back to maybe, you know, local sustainability, food sovereignty, mm -hmm. um, it's, what is available to you locally that has, um, like we kind of touched on, created the culture, created the environment. We know how people have moved around because of food waste. And so understanding the food, where it comes from, what that was, it's a foundation of not just knowing your history and who you are or knowing someone else's history and who they are, but it's also a foundation of security and knowing what's available to you. Wow. That is all right, Carlos. One minute. What do you? What would you like people to take away from this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a that's a heavy question. One minute. Um, I think just just be introspective. You know, when you look at your life and you look at what you're doing with it, what part are you playing in like continued colonization and continued destruction of of the planet, you know, of people. And you can look here in the four corners and in, in the, at the industries, at the mining, at the uranium, destruction of the waterways, um, destruction of Salt Lake, you know? Yeah, that's the pollution a, yeah, that you guys face there, you know? And, and, and I think that that's a big one. What part do you play in that? And how do you feel about that inside yourself, really? Absolutely. And what are you going to do about it? Thank, thank you. So you. Much. We appreciate you guys giving us a, a holistic perspective and thank you guys for joining us. We'll get back to this conversation on roots, race and culture in just a moment. PBS Utah is also home to other dynamic podcasts. More than half covers some of the most challenging issues facing women in Utah and how it takes all of us to make change happen. Here's a clip from the episode, A Separate Space. I don't think a lot of people realize that it's just not common for people of color, especially women of color, to see themselves in the stories that, you know, we're reading. Subscribe to More Than Half wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to Roots, Race, and Culture from PBS Utah. Yeah, so let's go back. We were talking about current issues that are happening within the community today. And Carlos, you started on that. And then um, 
we had to cut you off. So you can elaborate and tell us a little bit more about what's going on with the land disputes, uh, you know, some of, because uh, there's some uh, stuff that's happening on ancestral land that's that's been quite an issue lately, right? Endless, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not like, it's, it's not, yeah, I mean, it always look towards like this conversation um, when you when you have debates with people white people in particular um academics a lot as well that there's this conversation is you know and you hear this a lot being an indigenous person is why don't you get over it mm. oh, oh we and, hear that we hear it all the time <laughs> yeah right no i know i know, I know. And, and it's like because it's an ongoing process yeah. right this yeah. is systemic happenings it's not like this happened in the past this is Right now, uh, at uh, White Mesa in Utah, you know, with their, their water and uranium there, you know, it's right now with the hundreds of uranium tailing ponds across Navajo Nation and Hopi and, and Ute lands, you know, and it's... Wow. Uh, How can you get over something that's ears. happening right now, right? <laughs> No, you can't. It's like it's it's endless. Um, and, and then to touch back on food with that, you know, uh, like Regan was saying earlier about not having places to go collect your foods and go collect your medicines. A lot of those places are toxic. Mm -hmm. My, goodness. a lot of those places are poisoned, and you can't, you know. And and uh, we stay in constant discussion, and we actually do a lot of this too. Is you know when I talk about how we, in the U way, how we move plants and medicines, right? Is to like actually get those things that are in danger and bring them into a place that they can, uh, you know, heal. And and that's an important thing, you know, and that's why another, another major reason why learning about, I mean, culturally in particular, learning your language behind your plants, your your purposes, their ceremonial purposes, their food purposes, their utilitarian purposes, um, and how you can help protect them because we have dead zones across the reservations and here in the Four Corners in particular, massive dead zones. Mm. So, wow. you know, it's, it's pretty big. What you're saying is actually interesting to me because you know, even right now in sort of like your standard American culture, you there's a lot of refocus on food and on what you eat and, and how you consume it. I mean, and, and now I would say like, this is like, you have the keto diet, you have the this diet, you have the, like the paleo diet. And I feel like there's a lot of this emphasis on the foods and the plants that people are consuming. And it's like, that was in existence for, you know, all of these years thousands and, and thousands and thousands of years, yeah. you know, and then they people talk about this concept of, oh, I am uh, intermittent fasting. And I talked to some people from Africa about that. And they're like, well, you don't eat more than once or twice a day in Africa. That's not intermittent fasting. That's just how you're supposed to eat. Right. But they, they put there's a nice title to it or a name for it. So I want to read this quote. And this kind of goes back to what you were saying, um, Carlos. This is by Dr. Maria Yellowstone Horse Braveheart. And um, she's from the- Yellow Horse. Yellow, ho Yellow Horse, Yellow yeah. Horse. Yeah, sorry, did I say something else? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you said Yellowstone. Yellow Horse, and, and this is from the, how do you pronounce that? Uh, it's Oglala, the, the Hunkpapa Oglala Lakota tribe. Okay, great, thank you. All right, so she says, historical trauma 
right, is the cumulative emotional and psychological wounding over one's lifetime and from generation to generation following the loss of lives, land, and vital aspects of culture. So, you know, you, you, you hear this idea of, well, just why aren't you just getting over it? And it's because it, it doesn't just go away at the snap of a finger. What are your thoughts about that, Reagan? Well, you know, and an interesting side note to that too is that she was the one that came up with that term. I didn't know that. I thought that that term was originated from some, you know, black professor about slavery, but it actually originated from the struggles that have happened with the, the Native American people. So that's just an interesting side note there. Well, go ahead, Reagan, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so, I mean, we, we briefly, just before we kind of started talking about this, just us as a people, we have a, a very natural spiritual connection to everything. And um, we say that everything has a spirit with it, um, even a rock. There's a purpose for it. Um, there's reasons for its being, why it's there. Mm -hmm. There's a use for it. Um, every plant that's out there, it could be a medicine, a food. Um, it could be a dye for a textile. You know, there's, um, there's an endless amount of possibility in how we, we look and we connect to the land. And understanding and growing that spirituality is one of the things that, why we are supposed to be here on this earth too. It's not just understanding our five physical senses, which is what we can depict here in our hand here. But in between each finger is also a, our way of spiritually connecting to, could be our environment, could be to our community, um, well, could be to, uh, you know, how we, we connect to, uh, the Creator, um, which a lot of our ceremonialism is based around. And so as we start to grow and develop ourselves and try to understand what, what is our purpose for being here and who are we as the Five Finger people, mm. you know, um, we, we have to look at how we actually work with the land. And so it's no longer of this is my land, but this is, this is the land that we live on. Right, right. And this right. is the land that cares for us, and this is how we care for the land. So we have, we have more of an understanding of how we give and take from the land. We don't just take and take and take and take. Mm. And, um, and so kind of going back to, you know, the thought of, um, sorry, what was, can you reset me on this train of thought where we're, Oh, we were just, just talking about just the, the, historical the trauma, idea of historical, oh, historical trauma. trauma. Just, yeah, just, yeah. Just, so when, when, we, when we reset on like, this is, this is our overall thought of who we are as a Native American people. And so when we go back to the trauma and we start getting removed from this, we start getting things taken away. Um, we have sacred mountains, like the San Francisco Peaks is one of our sacred mountains. Wow. Um, and when we think about, there's a ski resort right on top mm. where there's uh, religious people that that uh, give ceremonies and prayers and offerings to pray for the moisture to come onto the, those, these specific mountains. So that way it can feed and nourish mm -hmm. the lands mm -hmm. at the foothills of it and beyond, you know, mm -hmm. um, now we have, it's, it's a recreation site. Right. Um, so, so the, the whole, the, I mean, it's just like roadblocked a bit, essentially. The, the purpose behind it is now it's, it's getting tainted. It's no longer pure. It's no longer for giving mm. to everything that is belonging in this world, but it's now being just taken and saying, this is ours and this is how we're going to use it. Mm. And so, um, I there's Carlos nodding there's over a, here. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, when we start talking about the transition of, of how we think as a people and then how, how a new group of people have come in and told us, you have to start thinking, you have to assimilate, you have to live this way. Yeah. 
and it's completely yeah. different and you see you still have these connections. I want to you know? I just want to interject for just a second and and I'm in my mind I'm thinking about the the idea of the shared cultural experiences and how does that how does what you are all talking about relate to me and to to Lonzo as African Americans and honestly I have to say that um, I'm really grateful and happy that you have the ability to reconnect to your own land. You know what I mean? Like for me, I got to go across the ocean to do that. Yeah. And, and I, when, I, when I went to Africa, that's what I felt. I felt like, wow, I feel like I'm coming home. I had no idea I was going to feel like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested, Carlos, um, what, do you, what do you think about what, what she's saying? I see you nodding your head. I want to hear what, you, what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, when, it, you, when trauma existed at a cellular level, right, for, all, for both our people pretty heavily, and, uh, you know, how, how does that, like, what does that healing look like? Right. Like, what parts of existence do we have in our, in our selves? Um, you know, for me, it was plants. Mm. Right. Plants are my my everything. I always I always try to, I always teach kids, you know, it's like, no, you should try this, try to eat this, right? Because every trauma that your elders had faced, you know, through this this process of colonization resides with inside of your cellular memory. But not just trauma, right? It's not just trauma that resides there. All the healing and all the resilience and all the medicine also resides there. Your foodways reside there. So try this. Because when you eat that, you're unlocking a cellular memory that was passed down to you that was taken away. Oh which is a goodness. part of healing, right? And so That is so powerful. Those are those are a reality. And I know this for myself as a truth, right? Because you know, I grew up in split households, right? My mom is white. And that was hamburger helper and rice roni and whatever. And then on the res, it was. You want a sandwich? Traditional, uh, right? And it was traditional foods. Um, so, you know, it was wild game. And my grandfather was, you know, my, my people are farmers. So there's always, you know, a garden involved. And then. There was always wild game involved, mm. but it was also mixed with commodities, mm. you know? And so there's like this, this huge thing. And it wasn't until I like later in my life where that I, that I had this understanding that the more time that I spend on the land and the more time I spend with these plants and the more time that I actually interact within the space that my ancestors interacted with, the more whole I become. Mm, yeah. You know, it's so, well, and it's real. And, and uh, I, I can tell you that is very real. For example, you know, we eat collard greens in our culture, right? Collard greens were mm -hmm. fed to the hogs back in, you know, the old days, yeah. you know? And so we got that. And our ancestors who were enslaved figured out how to make it good, right? And now it's kind of considered a delicacy. And when I, when I taste any of those traditional foods when i go back home and my or my mom sends me a even a cake when i get collard greens i literally feel like i am 
I feel healed. I feel safe. Mm -hmm. I feel love. You know, it's not just what it tastes like. It's what it, what my spirit feels when it hits my my palate. And I, I, that's that sounds to me like what you're describing. This idea of that those ancient family recipes and and foods and plants will help you. <laughs> well, and on another on another topic, we'll with that because I, there's a thing that that uh, that our cultures also share is that even in the midst of all the terrorism and all the destruction of our, our people's ways, our food keepers, our seed keepers, our women had the knowledge and the wherewithal and the understanding that both in both of our cultures, we have stories of our women braiding their seeds in their hair and, and sewing them into their clothing. Mm, wow. So those memories yeah. and those knowledges would come with us wherever we went mm, nice you know and, and we have that as a as a shared uh happening in our in our uh enslavement you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. thank you that's well, beautiful and, it, it, and what i was going to say was that um you know, a lot of people think that cycles, uh, you know, as far as historical trauma, that cycles of abuse and cycles of poverty, which which originated through, you know, uh, what happened with you all and then what happened with us with slavery, um, that those cycles just stop all of a sudden. That you can just say, oh, you know what? Get over it. It's over with. Well, you know, it created a cycle of abuse. It created a cycle of poverty and mm -hmm. cycles of abuse and cycle of, of poverty. It, it's you can't just knock it out. You know, I was talking to Reagan before this, my family, um, uh, my mother came from a family of abuse. Uh, you know, four of her, all the kids were abused. She was the only one that is relatively normal today, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's usually how it works with cycles of poverty and abuse. Some people make it out, some people don't. And, but when that cycle is started, it's hard to just disrupt it overnight by saying, get over it. You know, and I think that's what's happened, especially with Native American people and with uh, with African Americans over the course of 400 years. There's been a lot of abuse and cycles of poverty that have been created. Well, and and, and you can see it in in our lives, you know, and you can see it in our our, our communities, and and this and it takes this knowledge of where. Uh, how our ancestors survived and thrived and, and how they adapted. We have to bring that into, you're teaching younger people as well, right? I, I heard Carlos talk about teaching some younger people. Are you doing that as well to help with, with healing? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a big part of my job. Um, working with Extension, Extension, just a real quick nutshell of what it is, is um, the land-grant universities like Utah State University or you could go to Colorado State University, those are land-grant universities. So they're the established colleges that, that um, started for agriculture education and research to help farmers within their states, right? Okay. And so in extension, I get to teach what's being uh, researched or teach what's being discovered. And so hmm. our component is uh, like 4-H is our youth education. Um, a specific focus in extension. And so my job, a big part of it, working with youth, yes. A passion that I have, I mean, just even with my own kids is to teach them a lot of uh, who we are and where we come from. And that's for any culture, because when we talk about trauma, um, just on the, on the upper side is, how do people actually start to recover from this trauma? Those that 
are fortunate to make it out. Mm -hmm. There's a, an identification process that has to occur mm -hmm. in order for healing to start happening. Yeah. And so when we look at ourselves, and, and that's a big foundation of, of what our elders taught us is you have to identify yourself. And so that's part of what they're there for is this is who you are. This is where things, you know, you ident identify everything else as well. So you know where your place is. Yeah, knowing who you are is the and foundation if, of everything. if you don't discover who you are, you don't know the foundation of where you can start healing, right? Mm. And so I think that's the big gap of why there's only a few that make it out is because those few that did make it out are the ones that did eventually find a place where they could identify themselves yeah. mm. and they could grow and then expand into their life the way that every person is supposed to. Yeah, and then it's hard. Uh, if you don't if you don't find that, then you get caught in the cycle, mm -hmm. right? And it's a cyclone, you know? Yeah. So uh, when we, we talk about the youth education, you know, yeah. that's Having a big foundation. culture more. Yes, they're the yeah. ones that are starting to go through those traumatic events that are going to set their foundation of whether they're going to make it out or succumb to a mental illness or something. Yeah. You know. Can, is there, b before we even go any further, where can people find <laughs> out more about what you guys are doing? Is there, is there a website? Is there any kind of contact information if they want to help or if they want their kids to come and get some education or to come down there and be taught by you, Carlos? Uh, can you give us some information of how to reach you guys? Yeah. Or of, at least of how to find like where like where your programs are are is is that even available? I'm sure some people would be excited to to join. Yeah. So um, so for me specifically, um, I'm easy to find because I'm I'm a faculty member at Utah State University. Okay. Um, so if you go Utah State University and Google Extension, and then um, we have several county offices. Every county has an extension department. Um, and I'm in San Juan County, so okay. so I do that. Um, we're working on developing website, and I'm very new to, as faculty member. I'm four years um, uh, as a faculty member uh, through the extension department. So four I'm, years is new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for for us, yes, and um, and so, uh, but I'm I'm working on developing education materials. I mean, oh, since great. I'm very new, I mean, it, nothing's very widely available, but. I'm discovering and learning myself. And so as I've been doing that over the last, I mean, since I started my education, so we're talking more like 11 years now um, of gaining experience as a horticulturalist and then starting to dive into traditional practices of farming, um, traditional practices of us as a foundation, as a people, as a culture, and and growing my spirituality personally. So this is all. Um, this still is new in the for me. It's very new. I'm yeah. starting uh, to develop curriculum for education. Um, so none of it's published, but it's all growing and developing. Oh, we are so um, excited for you so, and to, to get this information out. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's going. We're. I'm it's trying to push happen. as fast as I can. Yeah. There's a lot of people coming to help. People that I have to ask, and you know, elders in the community. You know what. What information do I need to know? Is this okay? Going back and asking for advice and yeah. you know, learning as I go, basically, is, is what's going on. Well, yep. there's a lot there to unpack. So, Carlos, do you have any um, a way for people to, to find that uh, the website or anything that you guys are creating? Yeah, for sure. Um, you can go to iCollectiveInc.org. That's, that's I, the letter I, collective, inc.org. Um, you can learn about the work that we, we've been doing there. Um, and like I said, we have members from 
Oaxaca to Frog Lake Cree and all across the, the states. So is it just for, uh, we for do tons uh, of work there. is it just for indigenous people? Um, can other cultures learn and join or do they have, do they have to be um, a, a part it, of a tribe? It's, it's strictly, you know, it's strictly indigenous, but okay. with the, a gathering basket um, project, which, you know, you can, you can, you can purchase single issues or you can get a subscription to the, the entire body of work. Um, the later this year, we'll be coming out with the publication of the cookbook itself. Um, and that really is a tool, right? Like it, it's based in uh, traditional indigenous food ways, but it's really a conversation about colonialism, yeah. right? It's a conversation about, um, you know, like I said, I'm the I'm the lead writer on it, but in the pre in, in the last 13 issues that we've put out, we've had input from over 60 people from different tribes. Wow. And that, that goes from El Salvador to Guatemala to oh, wow. Alaska this is international. to across the U.S. Yes, you know, and and it's people telling their stories, and that was the the main thing. We have this massive platform. Uh, we have, you know, some of the, the the biggest names in the indigenous food realm that are part of the I Collective, and the platform. You know, the you the, the standard platform is like, is patriarchy, you know? The standard yeah. platform is the men have the voices. And with the I Collective, what we attempted to set out to do was hand all that stuff over to indigenous women, to our uh, two-spirit relatives, you know, and just kind of and go into that, that realm. And so, you know, the, the, the founders of it, you know, like Neftali Duran, myself, uh, Liz and Erica, the th four of us have stepped back. Wow. And now this whole new generation behind us has already taken over and is doing some really amazing things, you know. But that that project in particular is a learning tool for everybody, right? Because you got to hear the, the history of the people, not the history that the white man wrote. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. which, which well, is a... Yeah. Completely different well, conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I, I, I want to <laughs> piggyback off that real quick. Is there, what are Utahns doing, you know, to exacerbate the problems? Like, wh what are they doing to make things worse? And uh, what can we do to make things a little bit better for this struggle? Let's start with you, Reagan. I, I think it goes back to just understanding who we are as a people and giving credit to, to us that it's not just them that exist. It's not just their beliefs, their practices. Um, I, I mean, I want to put this as delicately as possible just because it's just living in San Juan County, I've seen a very huge divide in our community. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably, I, there's, there's somebody that's moved in from the Southern states and they say it's an even worse divide that they would say that they see in the Southern states mm -hmm. now with the history that you w might see from the Civil War and slavery. Kind of division, and like, wow. um, it's a very strict division where, you know, our tribal communities have our own political governance. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, if we get into tribal politics, I think this sets a lot of the divide mm. um, between our communities and, and the rest of civilization mm. um, because we are allowed to, to govern ourselves in a sense. So we're a nation within a nation, mm -hmm. um, but the land isn't necessarily ours. Wow. But we're allowed to 
to say how we want to utilize our lands, you know. Um, that was something that was a benefit to us, but that we had to establish a form, formal body of government. Mm. And though our people had a formal body of government prior to saying you need to establish a governing system, um, you know, and that was explained by our elders, by the chiefs that were signing these treaties, we already have a way that we govern ourselves. Why are you telling us to change mm. into basically a, uh, a method of governing that's similar to how the United States is set up? Right. So we have, um, like what, we, what you would see is like legislators, we have council delegates wow. set up, we have boundaries and regions broken up. Um, and so it, it, it established the mindset of this is our land instead of this is the land we live on, again, going back to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so in San Juan County, we have, because we have half of our county and the community is, is their own governing body, we have political divide oh, wow. of the upper half of the county governs themselves, but they, they don't feel any obligation to oversee and support us. Um, the southern half, because they have their own governing body. Um, but again, it's that nurturing and caring system where we should be helping and supporting each other. It's like a city and a state and then the country. You know, we have several districts, um, but how do these come together to eventually have a, a positive outcome yeah. that can benefit everybody living within all of those different boundaries and districts, right? Mm. Um, it's just even more amplified when we get to tribal communities because of all of the additional boundaries that have been set for us in addition to saying, you know, this is our land, but we don't own this land. We don't have claims at any time the federal government can take the land away from us. Mm -hmm. And they've already done that with the San Carlos Apache Nation um, a few years ago. They, they literally swapped lands and took a sacred, sacred area um, to their community um, so that way they could use it for, for mining. So you think people should be a little bit more understanding and... and, and of the purposes and, and the meaning behind this and, and you know, how we actually share, because we're all living on this land, yeah. you know, boundaries are, are actually invisible. Right. They're, it's just made up as a way to, to bring order to a system. Mm. Um, and, and so if we, if we start to understand, well, what's the actual order of this system? If we take away these, these invisible boundaries and we actually look at the, the real boundaries of what nature created, how do we actually live with natural it? boundaries? Yeah. Yes. Like so we look at the natural boundaries and I mean, we could go to Cache Valley and I've I've kind of looked at some of the history of like the natural waterways of Cache Valley and learned that there's so much re redirecting of waterways. So that way the water could be contained into a certain area in Cache Valley. And that's the same thing that's being done here in Utah Valley. Um, it's been done in California. Yeah. You know, how do we, you know, Colonization, when, when white man came in, it was, let's control the water. Let's control how everything goes so it's to our liking. And instead, it's, we need to, if we could work to transition the mindset to... Everybody. Um, everybody. <laughs> everyone, not you just y'all, right? Yes. Okay, Carlos, we're going to give you the last word, and we're going we're gonna to wrap this up here. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I would touch on that. I think that... The term like apex predator, right? Mm -hmm. This is like you're the you're the top of the food chain, therefore you control it, right? That's the Western mind state, and that's ingrained in you from from the time you hit the education system on. And if you look at that terminology through 
an indigenous lens that shifts. That shifts from, okay, maybe you're at the top of the food chain, but that means you have an obligation to the entire rest of the system, right? Yeah. You're not sitting there looking at how you can control things and how you can hold dominion over them. You're looking at your space in there and the fact that you hold all of this power puts you in an obligation to all of our relatives, whether that's the water or, you know, four-legged or winged, you know, it doesn't matter those in the, those that live in the water and, you know, it's our mm. trees, our rocks, our, you know, everything yeah. that exists. Respect. We have a responsibility too because we hold so much power. Mm. And as long as we're we're taught and we're looking at at it for, as a top down, as instead of that the circular truth, you know, we we're gonna have a a long battle ahead of us. You know, you you can see in the in the governmental system here in this country. What are they, what, what's the the fight about? Yeah, it's about who's going to speak. Mm -hmm. Who's going to be the speaker for the Republicans, right? Right, right. As opposed to the world is burning, <laughs> right? Like the world is literally burning. We're we're in our twenty second consecutive year of drought here in the Four Corners, mm. and all our water goes to Phoenix, Arizona, and Las Vegas, two cities that exist in in the desert no reason in particular you know like the world is dying and and this pettiness is happening because of the need for control mm. and so you know wh where does that look that goes back to what i was speaking on earlier like what's your part where do we play what do you like where where do you sit in this so yeah as a whole that's my a final word oh, sorry i didn't mean to cut you off go ahead no you're good i was just saying that was that was that was it yeah, I think it gives a whole new meaning to the uh, concept of sovereignty. You know yeah. what I mean? There's a lot more layers to that when you start looking at your holistic perspective. So thank you guys for being here. Guys, this has been a great conversation. We really enjoyed having you on. I've learned so much and uh, just really appreciated having you. And congratulations, Reagan. She just uh, had a baby December 8th. So that's yeah, why. Thank you. One of the reasons we had to push the show off. So. <laughs> thank you. So uh, thank you guys so much. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Roots, Race, and Culture. Check out our website for even more content, including interviews with some pretty dope BIPOC business owners. You can find all that in a bag of chips at pbsutah.org roots. And you'd be doing us a solid if you told all your friends about our show. But until next time, y'all, we are out. <laughs>